And we're back. Welcome to another episode, another collaboration between the Nomcast and Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am also Mike, and I am joined today by Andrew Morgan of the NOM for (laughs) yet another discussion. Yet another discussion about the power of the dog, something we enjoyed back New York Film Festival time, and we did a review as well as a you know, box office report on MMO and Oscar Race Checkpoint that culminated kind of, you know, in our film festival experiences with The Power of the Dog. But uh, today we're in for the full film study. So I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate this whole crossover idea for what we're doing for both our pods today. Andrew, welcome. We doggies, eh, Fatso? <laughs> it's it's another uh, happy hot collabo. Thanks for doing this, man. I know I'm coming in hot and heavy. You're you're coming in a little <laughs> undercut, man. I gotta jolt this back to life. <laughs> Charge it. Yeah, up. we Good. we are gonna answer all the burning questions coming off watching what is an exciting awards contender for Netflix. So, uh, you know, it excites both of us. It's right up our alley. But right up top, I gotta ask you the most pressing question on all of my listeners' minds. <laughs> How about them Cowboys? <laughs> oh, no. You're one of those? <laughs> no, I'm a Jets fan, but I'm just being a jerk with your New York Giants hat staring me in the face. That's right. That's right. I deserve it. Uh, it's the crosstown thing that we uh, continually bring up uh, as often as possible on, on this Oscars podcast. Mike and I, <laughs> you and I, exactly. uh, we can't help it, but we're we're fanatics. and the, That word makes sense. Uh I am I am really looking forward to this kind of look back to this movie. And again, we're going to stay non-spoilers probably for about the first 40 minutes. We're going to have the same non-spoiler review and the same spoiler review. And we're sandwiching something different for both of our pods. So on the Nobcast feed, we're going to discuss the overall Netflix slate in the middle of each of your episode. And then for MMO guys, we're going to do the Oscar lens and kind of talk that one out as we kind of handicap each part of what we uh, think will be nominated from the power of the dog. Whereas we'll talk about larger discussions of categories for your show. So I think there's a lot to bite into in this episode. Let's charge right in. Look, we have this New York Film Festival experience to go back to where Jane Campion was quite the character, as you mentioned. You were just team Campion after watching her speak for an hour in that Q&A, which I was able to enjoy last night uh, from the NYFF there. But she adapted this novel by Thomas Savage in 1967. She is the screenwriter here for The Power of the Dog. Uh, The stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee. Three of those four were at the festival smith mcphee was kind of the star of that q a i thought what did you think yeah I, he definitely stands out you know he, he's a big skinny kid like his presence on film is exactly what his presence is in in real life and it's hmm. fun to see him you know because you get so you know blinded by the stars right so you're seeing cumberbatch you're seeing dunce and here's cody smith mcphee who you know what do I know him from night like being Nightcrawler in the X-Men movies? Like, I, you know, I have a very limited scope of who he is as a person or an actor. He's not a huge star like everybody else. And yet 
he went toe-to-toe with these guys, kind of like jabbing, even jabbing Jane Campion, which I thought was an interesting uh, way to approach a Q&A uh, to go after you know the, the centerpiece there to, to be like, yeah, screw your story. I'm going to mess with you. The entire time and 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 show who he is as a true character and i've listened to um jane campion on npr too where she she praises cody smith mcphee up and down and and says that he in real life is actually more of an interesting character than even peter gordon is in this movie well it's a fascinating difference between how he's campaigning i guess because he, he has risen to the to the top of the supporting actor rankings and how benedict cumberbatch started his campaign kind of throughout these film festival interviews with how he was just very serious and answering all the questions and 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 very deferential to his his cast and crew there and and to campy and herself so that was that was a fascinating watch i recommend it for people nyff on youtube there full hour talking about this movie as well the awards resume, though, is starting to stack up for The Power of the Dog. We have festival wins at uh, Palm Springs, where it won Best Film, San Sebastian as well, Cinematography at Toronto. It was the third runner-up, second runner-up for the Grolsch Audience Award there. Uh, it and was th- right behind, yeah. Uh, right behind. It was what? It was only behind... Uh, Belfast, right? No, what was that other Canadian film? Uh yeah, I remember. I just added it to my list. I forgot too. I can't pull up that giant Google document though, and I know <laughs> get at yeah, that for yeah, us. You're right though. I think yeah. it may have come in uh, second or third somewhere around there. Anyway, uh, Jane Campion won Best Director at Venice. Uh, shout out to Eric Weber and the Sunset Circle Award noms, the first of the critic awards that come out. And Power of the Dog is four times nominated there. Director. A picture supporting actor McPhee and cinematography. Otherwise, we got strong critical reception that is staying very strong. 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, 186 reviews. That's a big number of reviews. 76% audience rating on RT, and then 6.9 out of 10 on 5.6 thousand votes on IMDb. So, very well received. That has not that has not changed for a while, Andrew. Yeah, no, it, it's basically, if you look at Jane Campion's record, even of her previous films, you're seeing a commonality where the critics absolutely love her at her heights, which this one is you know, probably the best uh, rated of all her films, piano being right there with it. Um, but you're definitely seeing the, the differential between that and the audience reception, which is also uh, a common thing because... Her movies uh, are a a rare breed. They are slow burns. They are subtle. They are uh, not for (laughs) the non-cinephile for the most part. So you get this kind of uh, split personality in terms of the ratings between overall reception uh, and the critical reception. They are non-traditional narratives, and this is another literary adaptation. I did watch watch the piano, or how do you pronounce it? Banana? Banana? Is that? Is that? Anyway, sure. Yeah, if you want to put that's that a spoiler out. section joke. I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm trying to add jokes because we were talking about before the show. Like, well, like I bring the comedian on to talk about the most serious, <laughs> like for whatever reason, we talk about the most serious stuff on uh, together. Yeah. Uh, when we should like be doing just farces and whatnot, or yeah. sweet spot, or just Adam Sandler. Like, why am why am I not your Adam Sandler movie guest on Netflix? Uh, because you're, you don't want to be tortured. <laughs> no, I, I think that's like my guilty pleasure. No, yeah. anyway, uh, 
we do have strange <laughs> narratives, un- non-traditional narratives. I would say off-key, uh, based on the piano, types of stories told by James Campion throughout her career, whether it's Top of the Lake, the piano, uh, I think Bright Star, etc. The power of the dog is as polished one of those as we've seen yet. So I was... I was really interested and in sinking my teeth into this rewatch. However, we had a hard time getting here, which is probably why we should have just requested the screeners. We didn't do that because <laughs> we wanted to go see it in theaters. But, dude, I had a 90-minute commute to this theater that is only 35 minutes away from uh, me typically. Yeah. It was a 35-minute drive home. I wanted to get food beforehand because it's a nice little beautiful spot where there's all these restaurants. I got it afterwards. Don't I'm not a, you know, I didn't deprive myself of that. My fans are very happy for me in that <laughs> regard. They they're not surprised. Uh-huh. But I was hangry watching this movie, so that affected me. I know you had some issues with the theater as well, right? You you didn't have the greatest viewing experience on the rewatch. Yeah, I thought I I did everything I could to land on time. Uh, you know, mm. I even showed up early enough that I can you know get my my diet soda and some snackitude or whatever you know and and make it the true real cinema experience. And instead, I got the the opposite uh, of or like the 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 things that you don't want to talk about when it comes to the cinema experience like mm. other people or the people who work there or anything like that so like they started the movie early i was uh, you know a 7:40 movie at 7:48 i walk in and the movie has already started i'm like whoa what happened to trailers um, dude so, it's confusing nowadays cuz amc is literally up upwards of 30 minutes of it's trailers it's gross yeah mm mm-hmm. And then some theaters, yeah, especially the Netflix movies. Like we saw, didn't we see The Heart of They Fall and There's No Trailers? I don't remember. I saw a Netflix movie recently. It might have been Tick, Tick, Boom. Zero trailers. Yeah, same yeah, deal. It's wild. Uh, and then this one, you know, I walk in, somebody's in my seat. You know, it's like, and then they, uh, the people who are in my seat were like talking. Uh, during like the first act throughout the whole first act before they left so it was like ah this is this is not what Denis Villeneuve was saying when it's like ah we need the cinema experience you know it's like no 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 other people also ruin the the theater experience I get all the other uh accoutrement that goes with it but not not this part of it you would think the diehards are going to see a Netflix movie days before it releases on Netflix for everybody at home. Like, right. do we have to see this in the cinema? Uh, instead, you probably got the few people who just, you know, saw Cowboy Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> and were like, I got it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So we, so we did have strange viewing, second viewings. And I will say this. I, I think differences between those two viewings – like the first viewing for both of us was very suspenseful for me and I'm sure thrilling for you because you're coming at it for a first time. I did like a nerd read the audiobook first, but even so, I was immersed, I was swept up in that first viewing in New York City, not so much with the second. Like it definitely lost me a little bit here. How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to have the big come down from going to a New York Film Festival premiere with all the the stars in tow and them kind of like, you know, having the the questions answered that maybe you had front and center right after. I mean, that's a big experience. Plus, you can't get a better hall 
than what you're watching this in. Perfect oh, yeah. sound and 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 picture. It's it's amazing. And then I also had done my rewatch of the piano the night before, so I was kind of already in Campion mode. You know, because mm. if you if you don't <laughs> know her style <laughs> and you just roll up in that movie, that's going to be a little jarring too. So I was in the right frame of mind, in the right place, with the right people, and it was the experience that you want. It's a movie that's a slow burn. It's a death by a thousand cuts type of approach, and it's going to hold a certain level of tension that, you know, with the score and everything else, like it all takes part right in your experience, and it was optimal. And then, you know... The next one, yeah, it's gonna you're gonna have a come down, but I didn't think I was gonna have as much a come down. But in a movie, as we'll get to uh, plot stuff later on, the movie takes you know a certain twist towards the end of the movie that mm-hmm. if you know what's going on, the second viewing is a very different experience, even just as a movie where it could have been anywhere, let alone at a lesser theater or you know a more. Uh, awkward experience with the general public it's a weird time that that thanksgiving weekend rush kind of thing to watch a, the power of the dog it's yeah. more akin to house of gucci like, <laughs> like kind of <laughs> half hate watch it half lo- you know love the craziness uh kookiness of house of gucci where you, you could brain your brain doesn't have to engage as much so yeah it might have it might not have been the optimal weekend for us to see it however I do think like December 1st, people start to get serious again as they ramp up back towards the holidays. There's a little lull. Maybe that Netflix awards release date is is more uh, suitable for a film like this. And that's probably, obviously, that's their priority. So I will say this, though. Something strange happened to me during my second viewing. And I'll tease it for a longer explanation and spoilers. But my allegiance switched characters in my, my second viewing. Mm. Whereas I, I spent the first viewing deeply invested in two specific characters. And on my rewatch, I'm thoroughly in the camp of two others. So I don't know if that happened to you, but I, I, I definitely had a different emotional experience the second time through. Yeah. I think that's true. Especially knowing what you know, after knowing the full plot. And I mean, you even had it doubled down, like you said, where you you know, did the audiobook experience too. So knowing the full plot yeah. and going through it, it's interesting even more to me of your permutations. But it makes sense <laughs> even as a person who came into the story cold the first time that there is a switch stance because you no longer have certain fears or tension that you thought you did in the first viewing of it. So now your analysis changes stance and we can get into that in more specifics later on absolutely uh so let's jump ahead to the performances and i think i'm stock up on two characters and and or two actors and then um i'm the same high esteem with benedict cumberbatch and i'm a little stock down on a on a I'm the front runner now in supporting actor at Cody Smith McPhee, but I'm stock up on Jesse Plemons, stock up on Kirsten Dunst. Uh, you, you got your own uh, kind of stock up, stock down foursome here. Yeah, I mean, to me, the stock up uh, after watching it twice goes to Benedict Cumberbatch the most because, A, obviously he's at center of the frame for a large part of it, but he's mm-hmm. one of those things that even at rewatch, he controls the narrative so much in this movie that watching his performance and seeing him play all the different sides of a 
of a person who, you know, is in mourning. He's also mm-hmm. uh, a control freak. He he lashes out. He's a bully. He's got so many different variables to him that it's interesting to see when they play those hands and at what time, uh, you know, and, and to whom he's going to do those as well. So all those choices are really what's going to make the second viewing more enjoyable, I think. Um, Jesse Plemons, I think he also gets a little stock up, but I still don't. Uh, some people are putting him in the race. We'll get to Oscar Lenz stuff later, but I don't know if I see that quite yet. But for for this, though, I did think the the nuances of his courtship in the early going definitely right. make the, the movie stand out or at least be more him than maybe later on in the movie. And then, yeah, same high esteem for everyone else practically. And 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 Cody Smith McPhee was probably my more high esteem from the last time, um, mostly because I didn't see him coming and I and I didn't know him much from since he was a boy in the road, you know, like way back when. Like I don't I don't have yeah. a great grasp on him as a performer. So well, that speaks to his abilities, right? Because I mean, yeah. we, if we looked at his IMDb DB right now, I'm sure there's like you 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 mentioned the road. I'm like, oh yeah, and you you mentioned something he did before. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he's nightcrawler. He the- okay, he's kind of hiding though, so it, it's it's exactly. a very different uh, feel for this. So it makes him stand out. So definitely between his very good performance and obviously his role in the film, the first viewing is going to be a little more higher up so i still hold them on high esteem same with kirsten dunce um and absolutely agree i think we we both agree uh why is thomas and mckenzie in this movie why is she here it's almost like she just said to jane campion i'll do anything for you because big part part small part i'm a huge fan i didn't listen to any of her interviews around this uh movie uh, so I, I'm wondering if that's the case or not. I, I'm going to have to seek that out. But she does make the most of one particular scene that I'll yeah. mention in spoilers, which I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for her. But, I mean, she's a huge star now. She's blowing up. So it's it's cool to just have her in this ensemble. Yeah. I will say... I will say Jesse Plemons, I, I'm noticing more of the subtleties in his performance. So I, I, I'm more in, in, in his camp with this movie. Cumberbatch, I think the dimensions of his character are becoming more clearer to me, even though he was like this monster in the first watch. Second watch, I'm kind of studying him more, whereas I'm I'm not studying Cody Smith McPhee's Peter character as much. So it's right. it's fascinating how that happens, and it's very cool how Mike and I set up our schedule where we kind of come back and rewatch these for three months. And it, <laughs> yeah, we do go on these roller coasters where we start to you know put the microscope on one performance or another. So that that's that's a fun part of our year, and I, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing myself now and how I watch these movies and we have all these meta jokes. This is a very meta podcast so far. Yeah. We're referring back to the last episode a month ago and it's almost like a Mike Mike one should be here. I, he wishes he was here, folks, by the way. I didn't mention that at the top of the show. Uh, it came down uh, ill and, and then he just couldn't squeeze in the uh, the recu- uh, the viewing of the movie and I don't blame him. I, I think I scared him away, by the way. 90 minute <laughs> drive. <laughs> Poor guy. It's like he can't go sick and 90 minutes. It's just not in these times. It's not even responsible. So, for sure. all right, let's 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 dive into production values for a minute. I have two standouts that, that I still marvel at. Number one, cinematography. I didn't realize this was New Zealand, uh, but it is <laughs> New Zealand as a stand-in for Montana. 
I don't know how Ari Wegner gets so much in focus. Like she has the moving herds and typically a typical cinematic focus you got to focus adjuster right there's a whole job for that sure, maybe yeah. 10 jobs for it where someone else is pulling the focus for her but she gets the wind you you see the mountains behind particular characters in most in some shots and you see the wind moving on the mountains you see the sunlight you see all of it in this fine detail and then you you know in other scenes you're seeing almost every inch of benedict cumberdale it's it's <laughs> really it's really something to just you know drop your jaw the cinematography on the power of the dog. Yeah, Wagner was also in the Q and A uh, at New York Film Festival as well, and they definitely talked about the painstakingly long process it was to scout locations to match the vision that they had for this film. And I agree, it completely paid off. You know, the vistas. I mean, if if people were in love with kind of the the nomad land of it all last year, you know, with these giant, you know, uh, vistas that they like to do in the perfect lighting and all this stuff, you're getting the you know New Zealand as you know Montana ranch version of that, where you're getting you know perfect lighting, perfect times of day, uh, uh, like you said, tons of things in focus, almost in a in a. I used to marvel how Spielberg's movies early on could do that a lot too. And, and mm. I agree with you that it is incredibly impressive, but this is not watching uh, city slickers. This is getting the, the <laughs> full on, uh, you know, version of what it is to capture uh, a 1920s ranch uh, while also making it not only just beautiful and informative, but also match the tone of the movie and keep things interesting when it easily could be, you know, something that seems repetitive and flat. I, I'm just laughing at your analogy there <laughs> while you're saying all these serious and beautiful and critical things because I'm picturing John Lovitz filmed in <laughs> yes. the same way, Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> with the backdrop of all the, you know, the herds and the wind. And, and like I said, all the elemental, uh, beautiful things that she somehow has, you know, detail, finer details on. I, I am, uh, I'm very impressed with the visuals of this movie, <laughs> even still, even, even, even hangry after a 90 minute drive, I'm still uh, agape at what they show us the other area that just i I underestimated after a first watch and and i do typically this plays on me uh almost in my subconscious and i'm not i'm kind of score deaf is the music of this film i i know i made a lot about the end credits and after you kind of get through the main cast you get that johnny greenwood guitar rumble and it's hypnotic but there's so much more here there's a spotify playlist that i've been listening to all the instrumentals like, I'm going to hear the piano melody on my deathbed. I really am <laughs> yeah. from this movie and from the banana. But I, I think there's <laughs> so much more he's doing to kind of craft these scenes and to tell this story. And, and you forget how much music any movie needs, but especially something like this where you're it, it really is a test on your psyche. Yeah, like I mentioned, you know, Campion's films rely on this a lot because she likes to do, you know, slow burns, very subtle things to build tension or to slowly build the narrative as you're as you're getting more of a an explosive ending of what she likes to do, much like like kind of like a classic thriller. And this movie in particular, you know, the plucky guitar with the haunting sharp violin layered over it, it matches the film brilliantly. 
because it conveys, you know, this t- kind of time accurate Americana mixed with, you know, the rawhide rope tension of more of the <laughs> orchestral additions that Johnny Greenwood puts in there. And, and I definitely like the blend and I like definitely when they hit those more intense, you know, almost nails on a chalkboard trying to hit you <laughs> moments that definitely work in this movie. I think when we go back to looking at this whole era of films, we're going to mention Johnny Greenwood as as a transition from kind of the, you know, the typical big orchestra feel of all these studio movies and getting, you know, Paul Thomas and Anderson scores from There Will Be Blood towards this kind of new sound that we've been getting uh, and these unique sounds and, and these unique scores we've been getting. And a lot of Netflix movies, for that matter. I, I, again, I, the passing score is something that I'm going to remember. That flutter on the piano, yeah. I'm going to remember so, forever, I feel like. So I just, I'm a big fan of Netflix scores this year. I hope they get nominated. I hope Greenwood gets in here. I hope he doesn't get cannibalized. We'll talk about it in the next two segments. Yeah. I'm also stock up on two more uh, costume design. I felt like I noticed more of the... The detail in that—it's—I mean, just the gloves that they feature at one point. The uh, the chaps was probably something I always noticed because people don't wear chaps anymore. <laughs> yeah. By the way. Yeah. But uh-huh. I mean, the coats and the dresses. I am right I now, hear. but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, as one would yeah. uh, for a podcast, uh, <laughs> trying to be in I character, guess. just like you know, Benedict went full meta. I gotta do the same thing, Mike. It's just who I am. It would depend on the chair, though, for me, I think. Uh, anyway, I, I, I'm all about the production design <laughs> and the costume design oh. after this after this rewatch. Yeah, I'm into it. Uh, you know, uh, the costume design, I didn't feel the same as you, uh, you know, because to me, cowboy, cowboy up, you know, that's what they're going to do. Uh, you know, <laughs> you didn't that's... hone in on the chaps. You just you, no. you, you have your own. All right. Yeah, exactly. It. You know, I, it's just uh, it's just a part of me now. So but. I would say, you know, naked mud bats are going to stand out more than maybe when the clothes are on, maybe. Um, but the uh, the highest theme for the production design, I absolutely agree. It kind of goes back to what we were saying about the cinematography. You know, you can't get that if you're not doing hand-in-hand with the production design. And it's so hard to make a sprawling 1920s cattle ranch seem distinct from scene to scene. And they definitely did that because you're trying to paint a picture of kind of almost this this family that seems very fractured in a way of them trying to him, especially uh, Phil Burbank trying to downplay his education and his wealth in that family and their esteem while also having it be uh, a cattle ranch and and all the, the things that come with that. And then the, the subtle complexities of what Phil kept behind from Bronco Henry and, uh, you know, even the piano stuff and everything else, all those rooms, everything seems very distinct and you don't get that without the production design here. I, I'm hoping they get nominated. And speaking of that, we're going to dive into an Oscar lens. We're going to dive into the Netflix awards conversation in a minute. I do want to remind folks that we will have different middles to this episode. If that's a pain in the ass, I apologize. We're trying to figure out how to do the crossovers for these <laughs> you know, movie review type shows, but we are going to do an MMO style Oscar lens. We're going to focus on the power of the dog uh, for, for my show and for Andrew's show. We're going to do kind of a, an update to the ongoing conversation we've had on several 
uh, different stops along the way of both our podcast feeds where we've talked about the Netflix Big Three, what their award slate's going to be. We're going to dive into a couple different categories there, like uh, international feature, documentary, animated as well. So, you know, I guess the last question I would have before we dive into both of those segments, and I think you'll play a promo, but we want to recommend this movie to people even still even even if they don't if have to travel 90 minutes for instance but what would be the ideal setting for you in watching this movie or the ideal mood is it a tuesday night movie for you is it a wednesday (laughs) i'm always curious to ask people this question is it a friday night movie i don't know is it a saturday afternoon when would you when would you recommend like your brother watch this movie or your, your your parents or your friends yeah i mean I, I would say, especially if you're unfamiliar with the style of Jane Campion and kind of how she's going to play this movie, I feel you need to tune the world out. So whatever day you're doing that, if you, if it's Friday night and you're trying to watch it with a, a bunch of different people, don't do that. Don't don't, don't do that. Do that. Watch, <laughs> watch King Richard. Watch Belfast. Watch you know Tick Tick Boom. Watch uh, some kind of crowd pleaser. You know, get all your jollies off that way. However, Got this it. movie is not that. This movie is full concentration, uh, immersive experience that you need to kind of just hone in on on the details and follow the story without you know kind of losing focus so don't second screen don't do any of that i recommend that for any movie but you know definitely not this movie because the details are what make this movie work and and the score and everything else so you know as optimal an experience as you can because like i said uh even on my second uh cinema experience it wasn't as good and it kind of made the the movie go down so i'm interested in the Netflix of it all, in terms of watching it at home, if you don't have like a good setup, whether this is, you know, ideal conditions for this, I have a lot of thoughts on what this is going to do on Netflix and if it matters and all that stuff. But definitely keep it tight, <laughs> focus up, and, and enjoy the ride, especially on that first viewing. Okay, so Oscar lens time. This is a traditional Mike Mike and Oscar segment, so I appreciate you diving into this with me. I have a bunch of rankings. I have so many categories where the power of the dog should not only contend but be nominated. This is, based on the pundits right now, yeah. something that is looking at perhaps the most nominations of the night. And that's a little strange for us to talk about in this context because we're, we're a little lower on it. So I wonder how things will stack up. But okay, we're kind of going to focus on Power of the Dog on Mike, Mike, and Oscar. And then we're going to broaden the categories and broaden the discussion on the Novcast. So again, go to go to his feed to, to, to get that part of the show. Okay, adapted screenplay. I feel like I power ranked what is most likely to win or what what is most likely to be nominated. And to me, the number one thing right now, because everybody has her first, Jane Campion is number one on everybody's list for adapted screenplay. First with uh, Clayton Davis, Feinberg, Next Best Picture, and Global Derby's combined rankings. Do you you see that as just like a, a front runner right now as well? For sure. Uh, I mean, because this movie will we'll get to its best picture things. But if you're telling me it's, you know, not only in the top 10, but then moving, you know, up the charts in terms of that. If the adapted screenplay and, and its current, you know, contenders there, I definitely think this is number one 
and you're seeing it right now across the board. Right. It is definitely a uh, number one contender with that. You you have we've talked about kind of the the choices that they made in terms of the adaptation itself because you did the the audiobook, which we'll get to maybe more in spoilers, but some of those choices are absolutely necessary to what make this movie work. And I mm-hmm. think that definitely it puts her in a higher tier as far as that goes. I think she absolutely has a shot to win it. I think she's the confirmed front runner right now. However, I do think it's a good year for adapted screenplays and it's a higher profile year for that category. Mike and I always talk about composition awards. Where do you give her credit? Like she could win director instead of adapted screenplay, even though, like you said, her prowess uh, could be something that is, you know, most awards worthy in in the writing category i don't know it's 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 fascinating to discuss this with mike every fall or every winter i should say it is the confirmed front runner though so that's one tier the next tier i would say are contenders obvious contenders based on the punditry and i i did this from consensus top threes on everybody's fives right now so supporting actress is my number two power ranking that's kirsten dunce she's first on gold derby davis third on feinberg nbp she has 10 to 3 odds tied for second best in vegas or second strongest in vegas i think supporting actress is gonna get more crowded and there's gonna be more variance just based on what I've seen thus far it's hard for me to say that Kirsten Dunst's performance is on another level and should be like a front runner necessarily over the rest of that field that we'll talk about more on your show but did did you see this performance or does it strike you as just oh my god this is this is good she's going to be up on podiums yeah i mean it's it's a tough one because i've heard a lot of uh chatter about anjanu uh from king richard and exactly you know that that's been a lot of things and and the more people see belfast i wonder if it's going to get a second life once it gets more on uh streaming and and any of those type of things later on where maybe that narrative changes too but Kirsten Dunst, the interesting is that she's a much bigger star and she's never really been in this conversation, even though, you know, people might be like, well, you know, virgin suicides or melancholia or things like that, where she could have been and and definitely didn't hit that same mark. I think this is the best chance she's ever gotten. So it depends on what narrative wins at the end of the day and where Mm -hmm. these other movies end up positioning is King Richard something that's going to really contend. Uh, be a serious contender for best picture that maybe that changes the narrative there's a bunch of different things going on with that but i think she has a very serious chance and again obviously the the odds show that yeah she's had the breakthrough in the in the tv side of things in in terms of awards seasons uh with her primetime emmy nomination uh, of late I, i forget that was a showtime show i believe uh so I'm becoming a god in Florida or something. Yeah, I did forget I didn't about watch that it. show. Yeah. I know Mike Mike reviewed a couple episodes of that show, but he couldn't stick with it either. I'm having a hard time sticking with shows, by the way. Just <laughs> Same. It is what it is. Like, I can't even get through Squid Game, which I know I, sh- I shouldn't even say that. But, like, <laughs> why... But it's just too many movies. Too many movies. So that's I know. a good thing. I'm in the I same guess. boat, buddy. Anyway, I'm a Netflix right. podcast. I haven't watched Squid Game. So you're, you're yeah, right no, in my camp. It, all right, so we're I'm glad we're finding a lot of commonality thus far. <laughs> yes. I don't know that always happens, but we're we're definitely finding. It. I I think Jane Campion is probably number three on this list. So Kirsten Dunst number two. I'm hoping she breaks through on the the film side, like the TV. 
does I mean she's probably confirmed as a, a nominee more than a, a winner like you said Katrina Balfe and Andrew Ellis are probably the other two in the top trifecta there director Jane Campion is seemingly solid right now in in that category first on Gold Derby second on Feinberg and Davis and MVP six to four odds in Vegas so they know something uh, where she's first right uh, in terms of the, the 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 handicapping there so she's in my third spot. Benedict Cumberbatch seems like a solid nomination right now. Second on Gold Derby, Feinberg, and MVP. Third on Davis, plus 1,000. Second in Vegas. Original score, Johnny Greenwood is third. Third on MVP, Davis. Picture is sixth. And that makes up this tier, this tier of contenders. Because I do think they are all contenders. And that's a deep list of contenders. Six nominations minimum. That's like a floor. These are obviously nominated. It's first on Gold Derby for Best Picture. Third at Clayton Davis. Third at Feinberg. So, uh, do, you, do you see a movie like this and it, it does stack up for you in that way? It's just the artistry is off the charts? Even with our nitpicking second watch, our hangry second watches? Yeah, Mike. I'm already in a different level of grief from you. Like, I shouldn't be, <laughs> but I'm already like six levels down or whatever. So, because... I've been in this seat for the last few years where it's like you get really excited about a Netflix movie. They get a ton of nominations. And when it comes to wins, we go, well, that didn't go the way we hoped. And Bridesmaid, never, not a, never a bride right now. Yeah. Right? That's where you're at. And there are a bunch of categories where you can go, oh, I can see them not pulling that out, but they have a shot. And, and you keep going back and forth. And so it's hard for me to pony up. Uh, and really kind of, you know, bring my my enthusiasm to some of these categories when I I can literally go, okay, Johnny Greenwood, we already brought it up. Is he going to cannibalize himself? Is that going to hurt it uh, in terms of Spencer in this same particular category? Jane Campion, when you brought her up as like this, you know, first or second on everybody's list and Vegas has something. Really? Last I looked, we were having conversation after conversation about how hard it is for for female directors to really, you know, rise to prominence. I know this is Jane Campion and and we've already uh, anointed her in certain circles either whether it was during the piano period or just uh, what we've been ramping up to to this point. I still am scared that like something like a Denis Villeneuve will be like, "Well, he deserves stuff too or or you know, uh, look at how much he had to work with, how much he had to construct." You know, bigness some and the maleness of it all can, you know, trump a bunch of things. Mm. You know, it, it's tough to really get there. And then Benedict Cumberbatch be like, well, everybody's saying it's Will Smith's time. And so, okay. And then Andrew Garfield comes off the top rope and he's like, hey, you know, I, I'm in every single scene. I am this movie and it's getting very well received. Is that going to go above a movie like this, which is, you know, a little nuanced, a little niche? You know, is that right. gonna is that gonna pull things back? So, <laughs> the thing that Netflix has been good about getting is not the big kind of six category stuff, and and where you know maybe you know when we talk about cinematography or or some of the you know editing categories or whatever, those seem to be the ones that they're like, yeah, okay, let's give it to Netflix. So I I can't tell how much I want to call you out for talking yourself down. <laughs> Because you do, ha- I think you do have a legitimate contender for the win in in all six of those categories. Yeah, we said that about uh, Roma too, Mike. 
<laughs> and I feel as though you're almost like a fan talking yourself down so that you could be hyped up in a way. But all of what you said is just good, hardcore analysis. So I can't disagree with you necessarily by reading the tea leaves and 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 noticing how people have awarded it up till now. It hasn't been showered necessarily, <laughs> even though it's been it's been you know given a lot of you know top of the uh, you know gold silver silver bronze. It's on the podium, let's just say, yeah, in an Olympic sense. So I, I'm just marveling at the fact that this seems to have such a high floor. I think. And in terms of the punditry and then in terms of the depth of all these potential nominations and, mm-hmm. and how people are looking at it, because I can go seven down to 13 where, my God, it's probably getting nominated in most of these categories. Cinematography is my seventh. Yeah. Harry Wegner, uh, consensus top fives, second on da- uh, Clayton Davis, third on Gold Derby, fifth in Next Best Picture. To me, that's just the eye test. Yeah. The cinematography is uh, next level. It's unbelievable, and it needs to be nominated in any year. She did a fabulous job. Totally agree. So that's like a projected nom, and I would I put this next tier as possible nominations, but there's a lot of top fives in here. Uh, it's almost like I'm taking the piss out of them. Film editing. <laughs> film editing, it got two top threes on, on Clayton Clayton's list and Gold Derby, seventh on Next Best Picture. Supporting actor Cody Smith-McPhee, he's first on Gold Derby's combined algorithm infused rankings he's third on feinberg sixth with davis 11th mvp four to one odds in vegas tied for the third strongest yeah so he's he's right there uh best sound costume design supporting actor jesse Plemons, production design again seven through 13 there are top fives for all of those on the outside looking in i have makeup and hair and i have uh oh that's it so 14 categories. Yeah, no, and that's impressive, Mike. And and one thing I want to ask you real quick, because I'm looking at the two supportings, right? You have right. Kirsten Dunst being a higher one than Cody Smith-McPhee. And I will ask you this, because to me, the voters are going to watch this movie once. Nobody's doing an analysis of this movie, right? To where I think right, right now, this is the highest point for Kirsten Dunst, because the critics, who are people who study these things are going to get more, as we did with our stock up, stock down stuff. Kirsten Dunn seems to rise in multiple viewings versus Cody Smith-McPhee gets a huge lift from watching that movie once. So I am interested in whether those things might flip a little, especially given the competition in both categories. What do you feel about that? I feel like his performance is not necessarily the showiest, so I I think that elevates him to a more of a likely nomination Mm -hmm. than necessarily something where he's just going to take it. Like, to me, like a Jason Isaacs, if he gets in there, I mean, he's down on people's list, but that, to me, is a a performance in mass where he's just, like, it's so obvious that he's great and he's breaking down. And, I mean, we could could go through the categories. I think we're going to do a little more of that in your show, but I think... I think the Cody Smith McPhee seems like a bridesmaid, not a bride. Going back to your conversation earlier. Yeah. Like to me, the standout eye test, obvious first watch takeaways that I had was score. It was cinematography. It was Jane Campion. And and like you said, some of these, some of these scenes are crafted 
in such a unique way that only a Jane Campion film can give us what she gives us. And whether you give her that credit on the page or whether you give that credit as a director, I think she's going to win one of those two. Pro- the problem here is like Dune is just lurking as a major. Like you it just you're gonna have to reckon with Dune yeah. in every one of the the below the line categories uh, for for cinematography and score, etc. Yeah, production design too, everything. Christ, so I, that worries me a little bit because I I do have this as number one cinematography. I do have this as number one uh, uh, production design. I just love how they. Cre- I mean, they create this town in New Zealand for Christ's sake. Yeah, they create this set, and you got you got so much that's photographed and master shots. I'm I'm always uh, a huge fan of that, and and again, you you can argue the same thing for Dune. Like they put this fantasy world in the middle of a desert. Yeah. So, so would I get you, it? Would you be surprised if this film did exactly what the piano <laughs> did in 1994 with eight nominations and three wins? I if I'm putting an over under on this though, I'm putting this at a much higher nomination count because I'm seeing so many fives. I'm thinking. Again, those top six are sound, in my opinion. Uh, maybe, like you said, you 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 have, you voiced the one red flag on score right. with with Johnny Greenwood. But for me, screenplay, Dunst, Campion as a director, Cumberbatch, score and picture; those are solid. Yeah, cinematography as a nomination should be solid. So that's seven. I mean, if it's getting all that, it's probably getting editing, and people have it so high on their editing list. Like you said, Cody, or like we both kind of got around to, Cody Smith McPhee, like he's a wild card for me in my own brain, but I think people are going to be gravitated towards him on that first watch, like you, you pointed out yeah, wisely. You get the, so that's you get nine. the high. You get the high off that perform. Oh, that the way this wraps up. You get the high off him, and you get less of a feeling and less of a jolt for for a Kirsten Dunst by the end of this movie. And so, if people are bringing that into their voting booths, yeah. that that's a problem for for the 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 opposite effect of these current rankings. So I, I don't know. And it's the same thing where you know it. Where is the second life going to happen for this movie? Because it's already going to go on Netflix on December 1st when we're well, basically dropping this. And then we yeah. have until late March, right, <laughs> to, to try to make this keep going. We don't have things like, you know, the Golden Globes or, or some of these other ones where it can get a little late life. I, I'm very concerned for a movie that's so niche and subtle and everything else that's going to it's going to need another boost later on. That I'm wondering where that is and how it can get there to really start to see that these nominations can turn into wins. Well, that's the cool thing that Mike and I are able to track with a year-round Oscars pod. We're going to see how long the shelf life gets extended for it by every new set of nominations, right? From the critics to the industry to uh, the guilds and and what ultimately will constitute the academy because other academies will vote on it. So every time one of those things comes out, another audience member might say, all right, I have to watch Power of the Dog. 
I have to. Anybody paying attention to this on whatever level, from casual to to really focused, and whatever they kind of jump into the race, uh, whether it's with us or whether it's you know whether it's just hearing about it from finally the the SAG Awards get nominated. All right, then you have how many of these actors going to get nominated at the SAG? So again, it becomes that must watch. Like if I'm going to be invested in this award season, I have to watch Power of the Dog. Right, and I think I would second that i think people want to watch this movie this year engage with this movie so that's where like to me like i i think the, that next wave like i i would put the over under on like 11 almost right now i'm crazy i just i'm looking at the field right right now and i'm seeing a year that's a, again a little diluted from let's say 2019 I mean, i'm not gonna, i'm not going to talk smack about it necessarily i think it's a bit much better year than last year little diluted from 2019 so this movie may not necessarily have the 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 huge contenders going against it where it might have been more art house in in its niche taste in in previous seasons but with the names involved Jane Campion involved we know the academy respects her I I think it's going to be a big nomination getter, and you're, like you're saying, is it going to be the winner? Well, Oscar's puzzle theory in my brain is just screaming adapted screenplay, like like it yeah. seems to be for these other pundits. And then the question becomes, yeah, what else does it win from there? It seems it seems like they could slot her in screenplay, or they can slot her in director. It depends on how much the Villeneuve, like what is Villeneuve? What did he prove? Or does it Kenneth Branagh take all the big awards? Like Mike and I got a lot to talk about. Hey, you got a lot to hey, you you got know, PTA well. to come. You got a, you know, Spielberg's West side story. You got a bunch of stuff still hanging out there, uh, you know, and Guillermo del Toro too for, for nightmare alley. There's a bunch of stuff that we haven't seen. And, and even, I don't know this to be completely true, but what I've heard thus far, but like being the Ricardos, is that going to be, you know, an Oscar bait that works, you know, is that going on too? But to me, you know, okay, you don't think it's going to do what the piano did with eight nominations and three wins, but it does have a little bit of Roma feel uh, where we said, hey, oh, a weaker <laughs> a weaker field, this has yeah. the best chance to win Best Picture. It was critically uh, well-received all over the place, and yet at the end of the day, we green-booked it. Right, we green booked it. Mm. So what? Is, what? What would be the one that's gonna take over? Because Green Book again, a crowd pleaser that won the audience award at Toronto, I believe, and you know that kind of bellwether. I know there's a lot of factors, but that kind of a thing. Does this mean that something like a Belfast or you know or something that's more crowd pleasing and a little more uh you know grounded to other people takes over? Uh, at least at, at, as far as best, best picture is concerned, let alone the other stuff. I think it will be recognized. If you take the Roma route, right, they got, yeah. they got what? Best director and best international feature and I think w- one other. And then everything right. else was like, I think they had 10 nominations in total. And everybody was like, look at this juggernaut. <laughs> and it was like, did we all forget that A, it's a Netflix movie. B, it's, you know. Uh, subtitles pre-Parasite, you know, where they can give it international feature and then tell it to go away. Like, this movie, you know, I I, I know it's not that, but it is very, still much a, a small movie. 
Your alarm bells are going off. I'm, I'm interested <laughs> to hear you categorize this against some other potential huge contenders from Netflix uh, in your half of the show. So again, go listen to the Nomcast for his middle segment on this episode. Uh, as for MMOers, we're going to spoilers now. Spoilers ahead! This is a spoiler warning. All right, this is the spoiler section. This is where you want to be if you have seen The Power of the Dog. I know we just did a huge Oscars conversation on both of our pods. Again, go back. If you heard the Netflix conversation, go back and listen to Mike, Mike, and Oscar and hear the Power of the Dog Oscar lens. And if you heard that, then go go to the Knobcast. And you know both our show notes will have when those sections start and end. I think we did a good chunk, like 25-minute unique conversations. This is a true crossover episode on each of our feeds but here is all spoilers all the time going forward for the power of the dog and this is a very spoilerish movie fyi so if you don't want to hear that see the movie we'll be here for you when you get back all right i have a carryover way back from 1920 when we started recording this episode (laughs) (laughs) we do this every time but i love it great conversation first watch Versus the second watch. I was invested in two characters during my first watch. More than most. More than all. Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. I was just... I mean, they're married in real life. You could tell the on-screen chemistry is there. I was so smitten with Jesse Plemons on that first watch. Where I was so glad and happy that he wasn't lonely anymore. That scene (laughs) broke my heart. And put it back together again. When they're... uh, The backdrop of those mountains. And he has that one tear go down. Which is his... Oscar real scene, by the way. Yeah. I think he could get nominated for that scene alone. It was shown on all the late night shows this week uh, and last week. I think Jesse Plemons has a chance at getting nominated from that scene. And it just had me in his corner and that first watch. Now, I watch it a second time. I'm in the camp of Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm a monster, but I am. I'm in the camp of Benedict. I'm two monsters. I I am just like a tractor beam, fascinated and empathetic towards both Benedict Cumberbatch and Cody Smith McPhee's characters. So my second watch, I'm trying to carve out and understand all these dimensions because they're they're horrible. They're murderers. They're they they abuse animals. Why would I ever care about a character who abuses animals? Right. But he does. He scares the horse. And a good guy, I don't want to watch the stuff in the movie, but at the same time, you're so heartbroken for him and his love lost and the big secret that he hides. I have no I have no idea. Are you in this kind of are you more fascinated? Are you more drawn to those characters? How did you deal with your second watch? No, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you said that you in in our text conversations that we we're having that, you know, you felt complete sympathy for Cumberbatch. Uh, in, in Phil's character the second time around. Wow, and what's wrong with me? Well, no, because I, I, I've kind of felt this myself, and I've also kind of seen it maybe pitched around, because in the first movie, you're following the plot, and you're following this story mm-hmm. of who, what to make of Phil and his just monstrous personality, his overwhelming just sense of, you know, wanting to control his environment to torture people. Gaslighting yeah. was a big conversation in the Q and A after uh, you know New York Film Festival premiere, yes. and this is one of those things where you don't want to root for this guy or you don't want to make him more well rounded. However, now that you know how this movie ends, 
spoiler, we are in. Uh, Phil dies. <laughs> Phil gets his comeuppance <laughs> for that attitude. And now, as you're watching the second one, you now know that Rose and George are happy and healthy-ish for as much of a, an alcoholic and recovery is. Yeah, uh, for their sakes. Yeah. And then Peter makes out okay as well, so now your focus should be on the intricacies of how they position the second half chess match between Phil and Peter. And actually, that's exactly what uh, we said during the text was, you know, you were kind of waiting to be reengaged like 90 uh, hour, 90 minutes into this movie that you kind of jump back into this thing after watching it, you know, multiple times or listening to the book. You know, so you you really you know the story. So when does the story come alive again? You seem to think in kind of like the last third, and and to me that's when, uh, you know, we're seeing Peter reemerge. So when Peter reemerges, yeah. and we know where this is heading, we now get to go and and see the little the little intricacies of how that comes about. And now that we know the backstory of Phil, and we've gotten it for a second time now. We start going, was he so unreachable? Could he have been reasoned with, uh, you know, without manipulation and subversion and ultimately killing him? Um, you know, because he's a, he's a man in mourning. Uh, you see all the Bronco Henry stuff. You see all his, his yeah. uh, you know, stuff that he kept for himself, uh, these memories. You know, taking a, a bath in with uh, his, uh, yeah. his bandana or his shirt. Like, you're seeing all these things that make him more complex than what he is. He's kind of putting on a facade because not only is he, you know, also, spoiler, secretly gay, but now right. he's also mourning the loss of the one person who potentially understood him. So you got a lot to deal with there, and he's lashing out. And are you supposed to feel, you know, okay with a guy who has that behavior? No. And that's why you're fine with how the movie ends. But when you rewatch right. it, you kind of start to maybe change the conversation you engage with the tragedy of it all and it's because it's unmistakably sewn into the fabric of the film by jane campion and by thomas savage into the fabric of the story because thomas savage this is true to life for him in the sense that he is you know he is openly gay in retrospect but he was closeted back in the 1950s and 40s uh when when he was writing this to the point where like the pain of this secret and the self-loathing of it back then yeah. destroyed so many lives. The trauma of his love lost, Phil's love lost and Bronco Henry and how it's dominated it's dominated the way he lives to where it's, he's just kind of living on in tribute of this man he loved. To, to, to the fact that he can kind of rekindle some p- weird parallel of that it, it's never like when you rewatch this movie, you know, there's no pedophilia in here. You know, right. there's no abuse in here beyond the mental and and and, uh, and psychological and verbal, which is, of course, very important. And he does bully the child, not the child. I mean, it's a college kid. Yeah. How old is he? We don't know. Obviously, the actor is older than the character, but it, they don't cross those lines. And you know that going into the rewatch. So. And I'm I'm rewatching Phil, and I thought he does behave honorably. He's not like the slimy guy seducing the boy, right? That I at least that's my second viewing. 
rewatch because even in reading the book and watching it the first time, I'm like, oh, this is getting slimy. How far are they going to go? He's too young. That's where my concerns lie. But here I don't get that. So you see the complete breakdown and destruction of Phil's life. And you, you see the total disconnect he has from his brother and how hard he takes that and how much that breaks his heart and how much it worsens his behavior. He lashes out because he can't connect with anybody. He's got a bunch of yes men. Okie doke laugh along with him yeah. because he's the big boss. Employees. He's got a mother that in the book he basically banishes a mother and a father he they banished them to an old folks home right. so that he could be the head honcho on the ranch their ranch their childhood ranch his brother is is so, like to the point where he can't even speak to people yeah. because he's so browbeaten by by Phil and i mean you, you, there's no wonder yeah. they have this di- disconnect in relationship but this movie how we see the process of Phil coming back to life based on this relationship with Cody Smith McPhee's Peter character, how they both see the shadow of the dog, the barking dog on the planes and how this, how, I mean, you don't know how much Peter's character is engaging with it in genuine fashion or as a calculating serial killer. So that, that's kind of a question I have for you throughout this plot line. Do you feel like he's more, premeditated on second watch and maybe that's why i you start to get shudders at that character on rewatched where he goes down a peg or two for us maybe we're afraid of him in a way no i definitely think it's premeditated i think he made a decision once he put together uh the alcoholism of his mother and what the impetus for it was, what the what the like a Correct. cause was there that I think once he kind of put that together, yeah. it was over. But and there's a very clear causal relationship shown by James Campion between the party that goes just devastatingly wrong for Kirsten Dunst's character of Rose, and the reason why that goes so wrong it's because she was psyched out by Phil, and more than that. Yeah, for how much I keep saying the words like subtle with this movie, it's uh, it more goes back to me saying it's a death by a thousand cuts. I don't think anything is incredibly subversive or or off the beaten path enough. I think this is a very straight story. You know, it's yeah. it's basically, you know, a person who, you know, was dominating the people around him, sucking the air out of the room, being uh whether his motivations were genuine or clear or like how those things go fine but this is a revenge story this is exactly what he gets for living a life that you know he should have you know changed his behavior over time to the people who actually cared uh for him or the people that he should care for by extension uh being like his sister-in-law and his parents and other things so he definitely has uh, his comeuppance come up to him, and I think it's 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 a it's a linear thought for how much we get to be yeah. surprised by the twist ending and everything else. This is a very straight story, and everything makes sense. But I did I I watching it in New York Film Festival for the first time. I felt a lot of people going, <gasps> you know, taking taking yeah. that for a surprise, even though in a way it's kind of obvious. And that was my thinking on the audiobook listen. I'm, I'm gl- and, it, and it played out on the, on the movie screen just how I hoped it would in, in many ways to, with a few caveats. But I, I, I will say it, it's been a fascinating study. So I, I enter the second watch with mitigating factors, or I, I leave the second watch 
where I'm wondering, you know, how much did my hangry mood affect me? Did long drive? Maybe I can watch this again on Netflix. Is something I now want to do. I maybe want to show some people the power of the dog, and you know, to kind of dive into more of you know why things happen. And like you said, like the first time you're trying to figure out the what and the how, and this and now you're you know on rewatching it's more about the why yeah. and I, I i won't spoil the book i i te- I, I was you know talking to you i wonder if i should spoil the book so i I'm sorry i spoiled the book for you but i won't <laughs> spoil the book for our audience there's more motivations for why things happen in the book or different motivations let's say because there's a lot of motivations here yeah and i will say i will say jane campion does a wonderful job with Kirsten Dunst's character in the B story versus the A story. The yeah. B story winds up being Plemons and Dunst. And the A story, of course, is... And it's set up in Act 1. I mean, the the, the, the t- most terrifying scene in Act 1 is this kid with those flowers, those paper flowers, at that table getting made fun of. And how much is he going to get bullied in that scene? Yeah. And it was just... It, it really broke my heart to see that happening. And you could see how to, like, Phil's wondering how far to push it. And he has to push it for his chorus of idiots because he's being the, you know, the tough guy. And and you see how how isolated he becomes after that. That's the thing. Like, this movie is moral in the sense. Mm. And it's from Thomas Savage's perspective. Like, he doesn't just hate himself for, you know, the, the taboo piece of his identity he hates himself because of the way he acts towards people yes and i think we've all felt that so this becomes kind of this tragic incapable story of or or a story so this becomes this story of characters who are incapable of forgiving one another yeah and there's no forgiveness here just like there's i i don't know i think it mirrors our society today there's not enough forgiveness in general people people will condemn others of doing such wrong that they cancel them or that they cancel culture. like this is where i get mad at cancel culture even even though i think cancel culture can be a necessary evil sure in many an instance mike and i have talked about that at length on our show but it will it would be better if people could understand and forgive and that probably is the way to go. I mean, again, maybe it's my religious upbringing that brings that up. Uh, but this movie is so sympathetic and empathetic on rewatch to the character of Phil. Yeah. And that's why, like, I felt so good coming out of New York Film Festival where I did a Sorkin-esque walk and talk with my friend who was with me where yeah. we did a, you know, 30-minute walk back to the train to break down all the different motivations because there's a lot going on. And, and you're right. Th- this person... You know, by all rights, if you encountered Phil Burbank, you know, in the the way we see him here, you're going to think he's a monster. He's a jerk. He's, you know, he's full of himself. He's the words to- toxic masculinity have been in every interview I've seen about this movie. However, it's right. not that simple. It's like, yeah, he because he's a man, he can get away with what he's doing. But in a way, his whole life is a lie. And because he's yeah. living a lie, he can't actually work out any of the issues that he has. He can't work out the fact that he's mourning because he has to then admit to other people why he's mourning. And his relationship mm-hmm. with Bronco Henry extends way beyond what they think it does. And even to his brother, where it's like, maybe you want to have a kinship together, 
because you both learn how to ride from Bronco Henry and, and but yeah. obviously they can't even mourn in the same way. They can't even you know share memories the same way because they experience two different sides of the same man. So even just that starting point makes him going to be worse to his brother. He's going to be worse to the outside world. He's going to hate himself. It's complete self-loathing. And then you, you're you just starting with that. And then it goes outward where, you know, he's already lost somebody. So when the wife enters the picture, he thinks he's going to lose his brother, who's the only other person who might, might understand yeah. him on some level that isn't just the head ranch hand. So, like, it's it's got so much meat when you want to talk about it, which I think is why I loved it. Uh, more coming yeah, out of yeah. the first thing because I got all that out. And now that I got all that out, the rewatch was less, you know, less tension, less to, to bite at. Right. You know, this is actually reinvigorating for me, which is No, which me is too. Nice. I, 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 yeah, I have to rewatch it again. But it's also, you know, something to where, you know, we're also two months further into uh, the conversation around the Oscars. And that kind of moves mm. things around the pegs, too. <laughs> I'll tell you this though, I I, th- I am reinvigorated, like you said, and I I don't know why. Maybe it's my sadomasochism, and maybe that's the problem with this movie. Like I think what what you want to gravitate towards is the the happier things about it, and the, the those scenes of cathar- catharsis are there. Like, they, but they're negative. <laughs> like it's such a soul crushing tragedy yeah. that you feel the humiliations of the characters so much more precisely on rewatch that that's where I'm at now. Like I feel for Rose. I mean, that first watch I, I felt felt for Rose and how, how humiliated she is with the piano and the, and the governor's dinner. But I, even on the second, on the second time, I feel that humiliation for Rose through her son, Peter's eyes. Because now I see him being defensive for his mother in that final act. That's why that the A story and B story are so well intertwined in this film, even more so than the book, to where you know why. It's, it's a causal relationship, like you said before. Peter kills Phil because Phil flies off the handle after the mother sells the hides, yeah. or gives away the hides, instead of he was just going to burn them because he's such a control f- freak. And, and, he, she defied his orders in that instance, and here he is in front of the son going off on her, and the son can only anticipate his vengeance because he has not missed an opportunity to take vengeance on anyone, as Peter knows all too well. So he fears for his mother in that instance, and it's a major miscalculation from Phil's perspective that he thought he had this son a mama's boy in a good and a bad way at that time, I guess, regardless, you know, he, he, he did, he underestimated the love this son had for the mother and, it, and he, you know, yeah, it's tragic. And it's the sad thought of like, this was the one time he needed the hides and why'd he need the hides for the rope, for the rope that is for his bonding own with the boy. Right. Cause he's doing something genuinely nice. And so the tether yeah. between the two characters. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, you're talking about a story, B story, the complications of, you know, Phil getting, you know, intertwined in this gambit run by Peter uh, because yeah. of past mistakes. And then also feeling for Phil 
because he's starting to actually turn around and do nice things and being actually angry about something that you can actually be behind him for, which is sad. It's, it's complicated and sad. So that's the thing. A lot of the best scenes are heartbreaking ones, and we kind of went through our lists in that regard. Do you have any other best scenes you want to uh, draw attention to necessarily, or, or we'll go through a few worse here? I think we both love the the scene where Rose chases after Phil and Peter leaving together on their oh, right. hike. Yes. I mean, that's, that's a tough watch because that is her, I believe you wrote it as kind of like her Oscar real scene. And, and that is absolutely true. The, the helplessness that she feels while also being a drunk, uh, you know, trying yeah, to, yeah. to run from the inside of the house and trying to stop what's happening. Her husband doesn't feel what she feels, so they he won't even help her. He's you know just trying to to pass it off. It's sad to watch. It's hard, but man, that is that is probably one of the the better late stage scenes, yeah. uh, especially from her. I'll tell you what. What broke my heart in that scene as well. I mean, she her acting is, is spectacular, and if she wins, that's why. Yeah. But what broke my heart was Jesse Plemons defending his brother in that scene. I'm, I'm an oldest yeah. brother of four, and it it ruined me to see Jesse Plemons after all he's been through with his brother. He knows the history, and now you understand that he knows he knows his secrets. He understands because you cannot. You cannot just talk that away unless you know the Bronco Henry mentor mentee relationship that, of course, must have saved his brother because he was a flame out at Yale. We don't know. I'm sorry. I don't want to spoil the book. <laughs> the, uh, the Phil character. Yeah. The Phil character has done nothing but assassinate himself, especially in the eyes of the, his brother, during this plot line. So why would the brother defend him unless it's Stockholm Syndrome? But he, I don't think the brother at that point gives any Fs to where the Stockholm Syndrome would raise his ugly head yeah. necessarily in that moment. So I think the brother recognizes the relationship between Phil and Bronco Henry, at least in the past, to where he sees... He sees Phil helping the boy, teaching him how to ride, even though there's some, again, humiliations involved with that. There's still enough respect there. And George notices, Plemons notices yeah. where he defends, you know, in front of his wife, who that's all he cares. That's his whole world right now. Yeah. It's the one person Rose who actually he can connect world. with. Yeah. Yeah. So he wouldn't risk his relationship with Rose to allow his brother to hurt his stepson right that's my that's again i'm just reading context clues so it broke my heart to in that scene to see george's reaction to it all i guess that's my i i want to film study this further but that yeah you're absolutely right that scene was tremendous it's very powerful and then i also want to just mention because it's a big part of this movie the tense moments uh between piano and banjo is, oh yeah, you know you can't undersell those either. They weirdly enough, uh, when you're first watching, a lot of laughter in these scenes in in the True. movie theater because he's torturing her, but kind of in a funny way. You know, even in my last watch, yeah, people were laughing. And you know, I mean, listen, I am full banjo. You know that about me, Mike. <laughs> I, I am I am Kermit the Frog in Deliverance every day of my life. Those are the, you are... the things that matter to me the most. <laughs> You are chaps. You are stock up on chaps. You're stock up on banjo. Yes. Stock always, always been up always. on banjo. It's, okay. it's a part Got of it. me. It's the way I live. And, you know, this scene, uh, I was very impressed with, you know, the playing, the way they used it, 
And then later, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch using it as the whistle to the theme is very, very haunting and effective. And uh, if anyone wanted to watch that yeah. uh, Q&A, that was Cumberbatch. Um, he came up with that and he kind of worked with that and, and you know, is from a guy who did the whole thing meta. It's a guy you could definitely root for with all the stories to say that's a best actor per- type performance from him. So those scenes equal that for, for that for me, uh, for a lot of the best parts of this movie. I, I love those pulls. Absolutely. So those are best scenes. Let's end with a few worse. I don't love ending with worse, but I, I do think it's important to, you know, mention. And if anybody is, you know, listening to this before they've seen the movie, there might be trigger warnings. I may, maybe we should have meant, well, I don't know if we mentioned it in non-spoilers now I'm feeling bad, but Phil scaring the horse excruciating to watch, uh, the, I thought we mentioned that in we our did. 75 yeah, yeah. minute yeah. non-spoiler section <laughs> yeah. at some point. Uh-huh. Uh, but also like the bulls, the rabbits, like this movie breaks my heart and I, I'm not necessarily a, a bleeding one as much as Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, but I do, I do have a affinity for animals and this was, I mean, I go, like yeah. it's, it's, it's time. It, it's period representation of that time. It's life on a farm. It's life it's on a cruel farm. Realities. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is what it is, right? I mean, they're not hurting animals in real life, but it is on the screen and it does break your heart. It's tough to watch. Yeah. And then add in a person who's trying to become a doctor and a surgeon one day. And you're adding that, extra layer of creep <laughs> you know just some oh, yeah. of these scenes uh you know between dead animal carcasses or you know snapping necks and and or doing surgery like there's a bunch of stuff that really yeah. gets you um but and thomas and mckenzie's reaction yeah absolutely yeah her one big scene there uh that where she yeah. gets to to jump back which again how gross it was elicited a big laugh uh when they uh, oh. showed the, the the bunny in the in the moment so um you know, again, because it's it, it's you either laugh or you cry about it, right, Mike? And that's the only two oh uh, guttural reactions for a, a bunny split wide open getting its uh, surgical uh, part done. When they thought, "Hey, cool, we have a new pet." No, we don't. Um, so it, it's, oh. it's 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 tragic, but absolutely, it, it's a weird weird movie. <laughs> that's why I'm saying, like the the life of it on Netflix. I don't know, man. It's gonna be short. <laughs> I, I well again I could see people getting turned against the movie just based on that in, totally. in the academy and otherwise so that yeah that does factor in uh, I will say that the Bible verse inclusion bothered me at the end it's on and the it's nose not the, I don't I'm, I'm not saying anything yeah I'm not saying anything about the Bible verse I'm just saying it's on the nose because it has the title in the movie right in the Bible verse deliver my darling from the power of the dog <laughs> however it's the Family Guy thing the, <laughs> yeah uh, on the flip side of that. It is a prayer to God there where someone hopes to keep people away from the rage of wicked men, the wickedness of men. I mean, that's I went to Bible verse meaning websites and I, I, I got that interpretation. And my God, does that add a layer to this film? So it works thematically. I just it bothers me just to have the title and the saying and, and the verse. And why do you have to do it there? It's almost like they didn't find a, a time elsewhere in the movie to put it in. So that's wrong. I, I mean, I feel bad that. Peter is trying to protect his mother from Phil's wrath there. You feel as though he is saying that about his mom. He's like, I I, I pray to God that my mom won't get tossed to the wolves. And I, I but in that scene it has the dual meaning of, oh, here Phil was tossed to the wolves his whole life. Yeah. And even though he became a wolf, he became 
you know, with this power of the dog, so to speak. Um, I mean, we all, we all have it in us, which again, you know, speaking, maybe I'm, I'm projecting, but it feels like this movie is kind of just the, there's just the audacity of the project to make us relate to Phil's character at all Yeah, is a treatise on the necessity for forgiveness. Mike, I mentioned it when we talked about it after New York film festival, Jane Campion is a savage. <laughs> she, awesome. I love her. She, I, I, I was going to mention this in our final grades, but I'll start it here. <laughs> Please, we're ready. She <laughs> almost relishes. She gets great delight in having audiences squirm. Her audiences, yeah. she <laughs> she go every single movie she does is a slow burn that is either a tragic romance or ends in some yeah. explosive, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching type of ending where you have complicated feelings. It's never like just relief. <laughs> you know, it's always like, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. it ended, didn't it? <laughs> it's it, it's just kind of like putting it in your lap. Like, here, this was hard to deal with, wasn't it? And that's what she <laughs> likes. Look at the piano. I watched Bright Star last night. That movie yeah. is just, oh, isn't it great they're in love? Cool. Let's wait till he dies. And then uh... we're just going to go wasn't that tragic and that's your movie that's the whole movie you're, technically you're supposed to know that based on the no i is. mean it's in the description uh, yeah. of keats yes yeah, but yeah, but yeah. if you know for a movie that you're trying to just follow well what's the angle the angle is mm-hmm. i love someone and then he dies so like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like okay that that's tough so it's uh you know and, and there's a lot more to it than that. I'm, I'm being very reductive but that is Jane Campion where she likes to you know just twist and twist and and pull at you and just not let you off the hook at all in in the most subtle of ways but man is it effective you're right she's a badass and savage when you say it from our perspective from a steak eating man perspective is <laughs> means a good thing it means that yeah we're, we're we're hyped on jane campion for this award season and yeah I'm, I'm interested to continue to study this i'm interested to review this with mike one maybe on a future astro race checkpoint maybe one of the next two that's what's coming next from us at mmo andrew please do your outro thing here what's coming next for you on the nomcast well i'm sure we're gonna have a lot of crossover talk uh mike in terms of that because you know we still have Uh, These other Oscar films, Don't Look Up, The Lost Daughter, The Hand of God, all to come in December. So I'm going to be very busy. I also, you know, even as a a person who was raised Christian and now live in a house full of uh, Jewish folk, um, I still am going to cover Christmas season. (laughs) uh, And I kind of get my my jolly jollies off uh, doing it uh, through the, the Netflix films and Boy, do they have a bunch of ones that are oh, all yeah. in the top ten right now. Uh, Boy yeah. Called Christmas just came out. Uh, there's a Sean the Sheep one if you're into him. Uh, there's a Robin Robin from the the Aardvark group there just did one that was uh, released on Thanksgiving Day, I believe. And then, uh, yeah, just uh, Love Hard already came out and was in the top ten. There's a <laughs> bunch of stuff. And so we're going to cover... All of it, slowly but surely, um, and I'm still trying not to get goaded into watching all of the Christmas Switch movies. So, oh, those yeah, ones yeah. Are so, 
watchable, aren't they? Yeah. I think, well, look at it. I, I, I'm envious of you right now because Mike and I's schedule has no room for any Christmas movies as far as I'm concerned. Right. As far as I could see. And, it's, and it really hurts me because the last few years we've done a lot with Christmas movies and we've got playlists out there. But, you know, again, I keep I shamelessly plugging everything in this episode. No, it's beautiful, past. man. I don't know why I do that. Uh, but I... I, I, I I love doing Christmas stuff. I don't know where we could do it. We got West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, Don't Look Up, et cetera, et cetera. One banger after the next, which is why I think this season still could fill up. Cyrano, a hero, et cetera. It could fill up. And unfortunately, the power of the dog, it's out front. And like you said, maybe... Maybe maybe you're right on. Maybe it's it is a seven eight nomination because a couple categories fall through, and it's such a tough watch. Yeah, <laughs> we forgot to give grades. I'm t- I'm doing such a bad job as a host on the way out here, but uh, B plus eighty eight is where I still have. I, I I might ding it a point, but I, I don't. I think I talked myself back up with you today. What where are you at? Uh, what rubric do you use here? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I'm in a similar camp. I think I started at probably like an 89, so I was a slightly higher thought than you coming up. I think that's festival yep. high. It just added that extra point, Good. you know what I mean? Uh, sure. And watching it in an optimal setting. The thing that's gnawing at me of how generous I'm going to be for other movies that have this kind of you know twist ending that is delightful, they're, you know the Sixth Sense and the Usual Suspects are rewatchable even despite the fact that they have a very twist ending because you love to go back and watch the breadcrumbs and the chess match and the whole the unfolding of all the issues. I didn't feel that this one was as clever in its design, even though we were reinvigorated about a lot of the elements. Until now, maybe, though? That's the thing. Right. Like, I, I want to rewatch it now because I'm like, wait, am I theory? Yeah. yeah. I'm interested. It could, but you were also the person who was like, I wasn't reinvigorated until, you know, we're getting back into the chess match. So Act three. Yeah. So is it, wor- is it that kind of design that's going to make me less wanting to rewatch it once it gets on Netflix? Or where does it go in my head as we progress through award season so i think i'm maybe in like uh, you know again like you maybe ding it a down a point or two maybe an 87 88 versus like the high of come seeing gotcha. it in its optimal conditions uh at new york film film festival yeah i think i, I want to study it is that's where i'm at like i i won't i won't be afraid of studying it again and I'm watching it again, and I'll, I'll do that on Netflix for sure. Uh, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Did you mention your socials? I'm forgetting now. Uh, or no, please do. At NomCastPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook, you know, the NomCast, the Netflix original movie podcast, and of course, our website, NomCastPod.com. All right. That's, I'm not a good as good of a host as Mike. Uh, compatriot there mike one i can't i look forward to talking to him next episode but i i really appreciate you doing this andrew and for both our pods and mike one i really appreciate you editing this monster <laughs> <laughs> once again how do we do that every time we do this uh, i'll i'll shut up now uh andrew uh please sign off for us yeah thank you so much for for having me do this as well mike and of course as a word season progresses i'm sure we'll see lots and lots more of each other and if not listen to mike mike yes. and oscar because they do a much better uh, job than i do without the netflix focus so thanks again sir for having me now i loved hearing your netflix fandom on this episode too like the fandom came through that that i that passion yeah. that speaks to me so it was, it was it was awesome to hear all right guys we'll see you next time